Hey, everybody, welcome back to Today in Space. This is week three of the April of Pluto. We're going to finish off that top nine list of the top findings posted in the journal Science that the New Horizons team has found about Pluto. So we're going to finish that list up today. We're also going to talk about my last weekend and uh, my trip up to Montreal. Uh, Then we're going to finish off this week's episode with a cushy rapport with uh, the lovely Sarah. So we'll get more into that, keep you updated on what we did last time and where we're at with that. And as always, uh, you know, if you want to help support the show, uh, you know, a bunch of ways you can do it other than just following us online. Best way, Amazon.com. Use Do your shopping like you normally do and you go through our link. That's on every week's episode and on the homepage today in space forward slash net. And also, especially since it is the April of Pluto, uh, go out and buy our song, uh, Pluto the Misunderstood. Uh, It's on pretty much every streaming service, so play it away. Uh, You can buy it on iTunes or on our store on the website. Either way, you can help support the podcast, all science and awesome stuff we're doing here. So without further ado, let's start this week's episode, the third week of the April of Pluto. Thank you. Let's do it. Today in space. Today in space. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Today in Space. We got a a special Saturday episode of the podcast. What? What? Yeah. The, Sorry I was late this week, guys. Uh, we had a really long week. And I've been fighting a cold pretty much since last... Probably since the last episode. And <laughs> uh, I've been taking, you know, Mucinex to, to get... It's one of those colds where just everything backs up and you're just clogged up all the time. Kind of what happens to your sinuses when you go into space and your body adjusts to the uh, lack of fluid shift. Anyways, was taking that stuff, but... <laughs> Uh, on top of being tired, which we'll get into, but uh, I w- that stuff has, um, from what I understand, don't don't take my word for it, but I guess it's got like the same thing that Sudafed is in it, but if you use your voice and <laughs> your voice is part of your, your thing, that actually messes with your voice. So I would go to work, get super pumped up, be like, yeah. Like, I'm going to go home, I'm going to record early, I'm going to be productive, and then I get home, and my voice sounded horrendous, like awful, and I couldn't figure it out for like a few days, and then I was talking to somebody, and they were like, well, yeah, that makes total sense, dude, like, <laughs> that stuff will, was not good for your voice, if, if you're trying to talk, you know, after talking all day, yeah, that's what's going to happen, so, that's part of it, that's part of why we're late here, and that's, uh, that's what we'll start this episode at. Uh, I had an amazing weekend last weekend. Went to Montreal for a bachelor party. It was amazing. Uh, it was a really great time. Met a bunch of uh, my friend who's being married, friends from home, which I had already met, but you know how it is. Bachelor party, one set of bros meets another set of bros, and then they become bros. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. So I had a, I had a great time. 
Um, and Montreal was really awesome. The first time I've ever been there. Uh, I've crossed through Canada before. It was my first time actually going somewhere in Canada. Uh, Montreal was really cool, man. Uh, had a great time. Had some great food. Had poutine for the first time. I fucking love poutine. I'm, I'm glad I don't have it all the time or I'd be really fat. But <laughs> poutine's amazing. Um, it's Montreal's like Boston, but it's also kind of like Chicago. It's also kind of like D.C., but in Canada. You know, it was pretty cool. Um, people were nicer. <laughs> do they do they teach Canadians uh, manners when they grow up? I, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to figure out, like, how Americans and Canadians can be so different, but they live on the same continent. It's, it's very... Uh, <laughs> it's, it's really weird. Um <laughs> And that kind of brings me to the idea of, like, the border. Like, two countries on the same continent, but there's a border between them. Something we're all very much aware of, especially as Americans. We hear talk about the border all the time. Um, and it's it's necessary for how things are run, you know. It just is. Uh, it helps security. It helps relay a territory Whatever. I, I, I'm not going to get into the topic about border control or any of that stuff. Don't worry. <laughs> but I, I did learn something about going to Canada and really just about going to another country that if anyone else hasn't done that or um, is planning on do that, I, this is a, a PSA going out there, okay? So especially in this case, if you're going to Canada, because I learned this as we were on our way crossing the border into Canada. First of all, we were uh, profiled, of course, uh, rented SUV, a bunch of young men all together going into the border. What are you doing? <laughs> it's pretty obvious uh, searching and, uh, <laughs> and question. So whatever. You know, it was no problem. The people at the Canadian border were very nice, but we learned that... Things that happen to you in your country can also be used to not let you into another country. Um, and we found out that someone, and this is something that I want to inform, especially the people of Boston, because all you alcoholics out there. Did you know that at DUI, which is considered a misdemeanor, first time offense, not it's it's definitely not something to laugh at, but it's not, you wouldn't think it's something that would prevent you from going into another country. And we found that out this weekend. So, uh, and not only that, if you do happen to have a DUI, and just the misdemeanor, you're not allowed into Canada for 10 years. It just goes to show you the the priorities of simply a border on the same continent, how two different people of the same race live differently. You know, they've made a statement that they do not like that and put 10 years on that. So it's something to learn. And it's also something I want to throw that out there to anyone. <laughs> don't, you don't want to get stopped and then have to turn back. 
it's just a pain in the ass. So save yourself. Do a little bit of research before you go to another country and make sure that you're not going to run into any issues. Um, but then that got me thinking later on in the week about how that's definitely going to happen the further we go into space, the further we expand as life or if we start meeting other life and have to deal with each other, there's going to be laws and there's going to be boundaries, you know, um, as we have it right now, any ship that is in space or out of the, the bounds of earth or just the country that sent them, uh, it's international waters. So anything goes, but once we start establishing that people can <laughs> travel to other places in the solar system, other planets, other solar systems, other space stations, there's going to be different rules. And you would assume if, you know, if you take the Star Trek route of it, that, you know, the um, all beings under the Federation have their own rules that they live by. You know, of course, the prime directive, do not interfere with, with life and, you know, its progress, you know, don't ruin that. That's the, the very scientific way. But, you know, I guarantee there won't be just one. There'll be a whole bunch. And that's when space lawyers are going to come back into the picture. Uh, they always seem to come back into the picture. <laughs> because we're human beings and laws help us operate in large masses. It is what it is. So we can only assume for now that it's similar with other races. So there's going to be these intergalactic borders, or not even that large scale. I mean, planetary borders, you know, and let's hope <laughs> that they're as polite as the Canadians were at their border. Um, you know, it could be the complete opposite, <laughs> It could be a harrowing experience that's probably not worth your time at all. Um, and I think it's very good that we have neighbors that are that polite. <laughs> and, it, you know, being polite is not um, a weakness by any means. I mean, the Canadians definitely show that. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed Canada this weekend. I really did. I want to go back. Um, I would love to go visit um the Canadian Space Agency, if that was at all possible. I mean, I know I'm not a citizen, and I know the same would apply for them if they were coming to NASA, but a tour would be awesome. Uh, to meet some of the, uh, the great Canadians who are out there uh, pushing the boundaries of space exploration and all that stuff, I would love to meet them. So um, definitely going to plan a trip at some point, but that's the future. We're talking about now. So, <laughs> so this week... Um, we're going to be talking about Pluto, of course. It's the third week. We've got the last three top findings that we'll, we'll dive into. I'll give you my thoughts, of course. And then at the end of the episode, we'll have an update on the Cushy Report. And we'll have a little interview from uh, the lovely Sarah. And we're going to talk about data and the importance of getting good data. So, yeah. So let's get into it. Let's dive into the third week of the April of Pluto. Pluto! So, we're finishing up the top findings reported in the journal Science that the New Horizons team has found about Pluto. So let's start 
with number four on that list, Pluto's upper atmospheric temperature has been found to be much colder by about 70 degrees Fahrenheit than had been thought from Earth-based studies, with important implications for its atmospheric escape rate. Why the atmosphere is colder is a mystery. So, some interesting stuff with that one. You know, apparently, uh, from Earth, we can estimate how how cold or what the temperature of a specific planet is. If I was going to take a guess, again, don't know this, just speculating. But I'm guessing that through light refraction, we can tell what kind of elements would be in the atmosphere. And then through that, kind of establishing, all right, in if it's in gaseous state in the atmosphere, there's only a certain, you know, there's a estimatable range of temperatures that that mixture of gases could have and that would then lead to the environment um and and what we could tell from it but from this um the actual so the kind of the theoretical observation from earth three billion miles away you go up closer and it's apparently only 70 degrees cooler now i don't know if that's a lot because i don't really know how you know, a variation of gases. I don't really know what, what to expect out of, you know, for a planet, but, um, 70 degrees is definitely a lot, at least for a human being. I mean, if it went from 90 degrees down to 20 degrees, you would know it. You would know it very quickly. Um, and that's definitely enough for an atmosphere to, to change differently. I'm just, again, take, take it from earth, right? Just, just use the, the thing, you know, the reference point, you know, right? You know, the weather on a 90-degree day is way different than the weather on a 20-degree day. You know, the possibilities that are out there. You know, 20-degree weather, you're running into snow. Probably not too much snow, especially if we're talking the um, northeast of uh, the United States. Um, You're probably going to get a lot of ice. You're going to get really dry weather. If I'm I'm going off just my experiences, 90-degree day... Really, you know, it's it's just going to be hot, humid, again, northeast United States. And possibility of a thunderstorm, but then it would cool. It would have to cool down uh, in order for that to really happen. Uh, you could get some crazy uh, thunder, uh, like heat thunder, right? That's the thing. Heat lightning? That's the thing, right? But regardless, it, it's an interesting observation, just on the fact that, all right, now we can we can make a better guess of what we're really dealing with with Pluto. Again, our initial observations were wrong, and that's uh, one of the big things about this month is just pointing out those facts that, you know, if we're really going to learn about stuff that's out there, we need to go there, whether it's robotic or human-based. And I think sending a probe like this makes a lot of sense. Sending a spacecraft that can take as much data as this one is taking. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of data this thing is taking. We actually <laughs> can tell that there's a 70 degree difference, in, 70 degree Fahrenheit difference. You know, and then that's, so that has, again, we're going further into it, the atmospheric escape rate situation, right? Um, again, not as much as we thought previously. We thought Pluto's 
atmosphere was just leaking out like an open faucet. But um, it's it's not. And the crazier thing of this study uh, of this this study this finding number four on the list is that we didn't expect it to be colder. Like you know, seventy degrees warmer apparently is is pretty normal. I don't know why colder is is uh, a mystery, but it's fascinating. <laughs> uh, and it'll be interesting to see what that actually means. You know, so I'm excited to see what other papers uh, come out afterwards that really talk about the environmental implications of a place like Pluto. You know, we've got all these glaciers and lakes, um, a lot of frozen topography. And again, knowing that now, I guess it does make that it makes sense that it would be colder. But and there's also the other thing that, hey, maybe we're just, uh, you know, I don't know what season it's in. Do we know what season Pluto is actually in right now? You know, because again, that's all we're getting. We're getting one snapshot, one five Earth day snapshot of Pluto at this point in its orbit, at this point in its season. Who knows what it's like? Like if this could be the winter. You know, who knows? And and we won't know that for a very long time, but um, we're going to get to know the Pluto in this season very well and hopefully sometime soon we'll go back but uh, for now we've got plenty to figure out so let's move on to number five on that list Pluto! so number five states the composition profiles for numerous important species in pluto's atmosphere including molecular nitrogen, methane, acetylene, ethylene, and ethane, have been measured as a function of altitude for the first time. That's, that's very important for uh, environmental, uh, atmospheric predictions, because you know each one of those elements, those, those molecules that are in there, nitrogen, methane, uh, acetylene, ethylene, and ethane. Yeah, they're molecular structures. But they each have their own weight. And they're going to settle at different points in the atmosphere, which is then going to provide you with different situations in how the atmosphere is going to control itself and, and, and move around and, and be dynamic. You know, our, you know, if you take our own atmosphere... You, and just how air moves itself. You know, it's, it's a constant game of cooling and heating and, and rising and falling. And it does that in the way it does it because of the combination of molecules that we have in our own air. And, you know, yes, we can make predictions for, you know, how another atmosphere is going to based on how we see these gases interact with heat and pressure changes and, and all that stuff. Um, so being able to tell, I would assume, again, just, just speculation, but I would assume 
if you see these different mole- you know molecular parts of the Plut- plutonian atmosphere and they're at different heights you're going to be able to tell probably how dense that air is you know like let's just say one is one is molecularly lighter than the other let's just say um for the hell of it um that nitrogen is lighter than methane right which makes sense uh methane has more to it um then nitrogen is lower than the methane then we know that the nitrogen layer is denser because there has to be more of it if it's lower in the atmosphere which would which would mean that it's probably lighter um you know a lot of this definitely has to do with how much gravity is there but you know gravity's a constant so it's not going to you know, things are still going to be lighter if there's less of it you know what i mean so that's kind of where my logic goes to but it's an interesting finding. Um, definitely one of those that just is setting the tone for what we're going to find out later about Pluto's atmosphere. You know what I mean? Like these are the these are the things that the, the atmospheric scientists are going to look at and be able to start their predictions. You know, then they'll be able to look at how you know if they did grab this data, how the Plutonian atmosphere is actually moving around and, and operating. Then. We can take this data, how much of everything it is at different levels, and we'll be able to get a much better understanding of what the fuck is going on in that atmosphere, you know, and then we'll be able to predict um, what the weather is like there and then how that is affecting the planet as a whole. And then that will hopefully bring us closer to understanding what's going on with this atmospheric escape rate, you know, why was our initial guess of it going out faster wrong? You know, what did we miss? What can we learn from other planets and how they react? And then how can we take that information and transfer it back to us on Earth for our own Earth-like ambitions? Or going to Mars is going to be another thing. If we ever, not even just Mars, but if we ever decide to, you know, recreate a a planet, whether it's because we want to, can... Or have to, you know, in that we have to quickly create another planet because ours, for whatever reason, maybe we ruined it. Or maybe there's nothing we can do to prevent it from um, being destroyed. If we ever need to go to another planet, knowing something like this about uh, the different atmospheres and how they work on different planets at different stages in their lifetime is probably a good thing. (laughs) It's probably a good thing because then we'll be able to know how do we get the atmosphere to be a way that we can actually live in. You know, how how can, you know, maybe that'll help us with figuring out our situation now with, with call it global warming because everyone knows what I'm talking about when I say that. Um, but can we actually affect our climate in a positive way by learning about how it's affected on another planet? I would like I would like to think so. I'd like to hope so. You know, it's not guaranteed, but that's kind of where all this stuff is leading to is you know, we're finding out about something else to then hopefully apply it for something that we need to do or something that's going to help us. It's all good stuff. 
And this is definitely one of those uh, scientific data ones that we don't really know yet. We just know this is what's there. So that's that's what this finding was, is a um, bunch of data that we now need to figure out what is it telling us? What can we figure out from this? That was number five on the list. Pluto! Now. 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 Last. The last on the list of top New Horizons findings published in the journal Science. We've got number eight on the list. And this one is pretty science heavy. So we're going to go over the explanation of the top finding, what it is, and then we'll dive a little bit deeper with a little help from the internet and, of course, NASA's website. So number eight on the list is stated as such. New Horizons charge particle instruments revealed that the interaction region between the solar wind and Pluto's atmosphere is confined on the day side of Pluto to within six Pluto radii, about 4,500 miles or 7,000 kilometers. This is much smaller than expected before the flyby and is likely due to the reduced atmospheric escape rate found from modeling of the ultraviolet atmospheric occultation data. That was a lot of words. (laughs) And they mean something. So let's go to the New Horizons, pluto.jhuapl.edu, where they have the spacecraft's payload data. So let's talk about the instrument that actually took this data and hopefully find an answer, which there's a great paragraph right here on the Solar Wind Around Pluto, or SWAP, instrument. Which if you go back to the NASA social episode, I believe they did talk about it. But let's start by quoting the SWAP instruments definition here on the New Horizon page, the payload page. So, SWAP, of course, standing for solar wind around Pluto. Pluto's small gravitational acceleration approximately one-sixteenth of Earth's gravity, lead scientists to believe or to think that about 75 kilograms or 165 pounds of material escape its atmosphere every second. So that was the original idea of, of how much we thought was leaving the scientists, and it was because of the gravity, right? So because it was one-sixteenth, it can't hold the gravity that well, right? So that was where our guess came from. So good to know. Now back to the quote. The atmospheric gases that escape Pluto's weak gravity leave the planet as neutral atoms and molecules. So those are the things that are leaving, are neutral atoms and molecules. And these atoms, back to quoting, and mo- these atoms and molecules are ionized by ultraviolet sunlight, similar to Earth's upper atmosphere and ionosphere. Once they become electrically charged, the ions and electrons are picked up and carried away by the solar wind. In the process, these pickup ions gain substantial energy, thousands of electron volts. 
This energy comes from the solar wind, which is correspondingly slowed down and diverted around Pluto. So, unquote, uh, as the solar wind is coming into play with the atmosphere, ions are being picked up from the solar wind interacting with the atmosphere. And then basically the outer layer of the atmosphere gets swept away when the top layer becomes uh, and gains that energy. And so then it kind of gets pushed around, and, and all atmospheres do this. So this instrument swap is trying to measure those low-energy interactions that are caused by the solar wind. And by measuring, back to quoting, by measuring how the solar wind is perturbed by the interaction with Pluto's escaping atmosphere, swap will determine the escape rate of atmospheric material from Pluto. And that's where this whole lower escape rate thing is coming in. You know, they built what is the largest aperture instrument ever used to measure solar wind because it, it, it's such an important thing for us to measure for this. And then they found out that it's less than what we thought. And so the question is, if we started our argument as gravity is this thing that holds the atmosphere together, if it's one-sixteenth of Earth's gravity, then why is it staying together so well? Comparatively to, you know, and what that tells us is that gravity is not the only major factor in keeping an atmosphere from escaping, especially due to these uh, solar wind interactions. So the question is, all right, what's, what's happening? What is actually causing that? I don't have a good answer for you. <laughs> But it's 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 uh it's a very interesting thought. You know, number one, just the fact that gravity affects that much stuff. I mean, it, it really is amazing just how much gravity does. I mean, we if you've been listening to the show or you've looked up anything about just the human body in space, our bodies rely so much on gravity. It does so much for us. It it we were developed in gravity. So uh the lack of it is something we need to learn how to defeat and, and, and not defeat, uh, manipulate for our own advantage. Because that's what the physical sciences are all about, right? And that's what survival is about. And so if we can learn more about how life, which for what we know has to include an atmosphere, then if we can learn what else can help, you know, or, or or why? Let's just ask why. Why can't we understand? <laughs> what don't we get about the atmosphere that uh, lets us get it wrong on both accounts? That it's not escaping a lot, and it's colder than what we thought. You know, so I love that because it means we've got more to do. Some people, that would just drive them nuts fucking nuts that they got it wrong that they did they weren't perfect you know i like that i like finding out that we don't know shit 
It's exciting. Uh, it brings everybody back to normal. That's what I love about it. <laughs> it's the ultimate humbling situation is when you realize you were wrong. It sucks sometimes. <laughs> but it's exciting. That means we've got more to find out. We've got more to learn. And really, with this, we're, we're going to figure out more from this data that's being, being taken. And it, it really is exciting. And I, I know I've said that like a million times. I'm even getting a little sick of saying it myself. But <laughs> so much has been learned, and this isn't even all the data yet. This is just what, what they've gone through and written papers about. The first steps, the first understanding of Pluto, Plutonian system galore. So much to be learned from this and what we can expect if we actually venture out and look for it. You know, don't ever let your preconceived notions take the best of you. There's always something to learn if you go for it. And you can apply that to anything. You can apply that to, you know, life in general. You're going to learn more. Let's, let's take it here. Let's, let's take the college relation, right? Okay. College student, right? You're going to school. You're learning all this stuff there. But then you go work and, and you do what you were learning at work. It's totally different. Yes, the theory helps you understand a few things to get started and will later down the road help you understand what you're doing a little bit better. But doing it, actively doing that research or take it to sports, actually trying that move and seeing like seeing seeing an athlete, uh, an NBA star do a spin move to break into the lane or get away from his defender. Right. It looks awesome, and they make it look so fucking easy. And then you go to try it, and you realize, oh, like my body does not know how to do that yet. So then you train it, and you practice it, and then you know it. Then then you understand it, and that's the exciting thing we got to right now is we just tried to do the spin move at Pluto, and we stumbled <laughs> and ran into the person we were trying to spin around. <laughs> we're like, oh, we didn't know how hard this was, or we didn't, we didn't know how to actually do this. We didn't know Pluto. And that's my whole point around this whole thing with Pluto, is now we can start over, people. Now we don't have to have the argument about, you know, is Pluto a planet, and base it off of how people feel. Let's base it off of what Pluto really is. Can we please do that? That's what I'm hoping to get out of this, this month is let's accept Pluto for what it is, not what we think it is. All right. <laughs> oh, but it's been fun this month, right? I mean, I've learned a lot. I've definitely learned a lot about Pluto and a lot about um, planet in general. I'm not going to lie to you. I-, I have not learned this much about any other planet. So um, to learn about this Plutonian system is really, really cool. I mean, it has so much diversity to it i mean uh nitrogen glaciers like that alone you know never mind all the cool stuff we've been just seeing from the surface of it the surface 
I, I can't wait until there's a really big full-size map of it and just take an hour and just look over the whole thing and, and, and see all the different surfaces it has on it and and all the stuff that it is, you know? Because before that, all, all, all the only thing of Pluto I ever had and I ever knew was this, uh, like, old Hanna-Barbera cartoon of, like, the planet with a sign on it that said Pluto. Like, <laughs> that was the best thing, man. That was it. And now we're going to figure it out. So, without repeating myself too many times, <laughs> that'll finish it for this week for the Pluto. Uh, and what I'd like to do next is give you guys an update on the Cushy Report, because we talked about this before. We talked about how uh, we were learning about applied behavioral analysis and just behavioral science in general. We were learning that from the lovely Sarah, who comes on here um, every so often when she has free time. And we're going to talk more about what we've been doing, which is uh, is my cat, Cushy, has a few things that she does that are just, um, number one, a danger to herself, and number two, just behaviors that are not good, like chewing paper. Don't really want to do that. And there's a reason she's doing it. She's getting something out of chewing that paper. You know, the other thing that we're uh, trying to stop is her biting cords because then she's going to electrocute herself. But that's kind of down the road. And what we've been doing is taking data. And that's what uh, this little interview here with Sarah is going to be about. It's about data. And we've had to... Uh, change our minds and change our strategy and there's a whole reason for it so let's get into it uh with this this week's cushy report with sarah here we are thank you sarah for coming on absolutely thanks for having me i'm glad you uh had some time in your busy busy week uh finals week yeah it's It's been crazy so you, you getting there you're almost almost done almost done one year to go hey good for you Woohoo! good for you thank you uh, yeah, not easy. Uh, you graduate school and work. Uh, kudos. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. I know it's not easy. No, no, it is not. But uh, yeah. it'll be worth it. Yes, definitely. 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 So let's get into data. Yeah. Right. Let's get into the, the, the cushy rapport. Okay. <laughs> so uh, last time we talked, we saw a little trend mm-hmm. in, in her behaviors Increasing trend. Increasing trend. And we were going to maybe jump to the next step, which... Intervene, Intervene, yeah. yep. And basically try and affect the behavior, yeah. right? Okay. Create behavioral change, yeah. All right. And then we kind of changed it up there. We changed our minds. Yeah, so so explain a little bit kind of what <clears throat> so, the idea was. Um, last time I we talked to all you or mm-hmm. you talked on the show about it, I, mm-hmm. I believe, was when you were um, carrying your your little time around and yeah. Um, yeah. and making sure that you had the as accurate amount of time as you could. Um, so so let me explain what we were doing. So he was taking time um, on this timer of how long he was down. Um, he was hanging out with Kush um, in the same space as Kush, and um, what her. And then keeping track of her behaviors during that time. Um, But what we found was 
no matter how hard he tried, it just couldn't be accurate. A hundred percent of the time. Yeah, I would, I would, you know, leave the room, forget to stop the timer, or f- forget to start the timer. Right. And so I, I would always forget how long I was actually around, which that's a big part of this date is how many times does she have uh, behavior? Yeah. How many times does she? We're looking at a rate. A rate. Okay. So, so if, if we can't get the time that I'm around, then then we're we have yeah. a, a messed no rate. up rate. Right. So um, I came up with the idea to try. Um, Session based instead of um, all the time mm-hmm. um, tracking her behaviors. Um, this is this is because um, you know it, it could be more accurate if we spent only a particular time a day keeping data. Mm-hmm. So we chose an hour. Um, yeah, it's the easiest. It. I chose the hour because of her rate of behavior. If her rate of behavior happened really, 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 really frequently, we could mm-hmm. have done less time. Mm-hmm. But an hour, it was likely that she was going to exhibit the behavior at least once, probably. Mm-hmm. And and so if if we chose too short of a time, she wouldn't exhibit the behavior, and we couldn't. Um, There's nothing sh- we do about it. Yeah, we couldn't. Yeah, we couldn't um, track the time. But if we choose too long of a time, is too much time out of your life, right? Um, Which is another big part of. <laughs> Yeah, it, I mean, you know, I love science. I love doing things like this, but I'm also human. And right. <laughs> I can only keep that up for like so long. Yeah. So the hour was really good. It started off uh, really well. I, I started off doing it as soon as I came back from work, mm-hmm. um, which was good some days and good, bad, uh, not good <laughs> some days. <laughs> good, bad. Good, good, bad. Good, bad, bad. Uh, <laughs> and what was happening was the days when there was a lot, you know, I would come home, spend time with her. There was no reason for her to to do what I, I think are uh, attention based behaviors, right. because she was getting attention. Right. So, and that went on for like I think three or four weeks, and then we talked about it again, mm-hmm. and we switched it up to, okay, let's only take data after you've come in. She's relaxed. She's then in the state of mind of all right, he's here. I want to play, kind of thing. I want to get attention. And the idea from that is. That we're looking to find a time that is like a random sample. In in an ideal world, we either do it at the exact same time every single day, mm-hmm. or it would be a completely random sampling of time. Right. So, but we can't do a true random sampling of time because you're not here all the time. You right. have a job, yeah. or you're not yeah. here every day, right. and you know you go places and you do things. Mm-hmm. You're a human. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> Killing it. All right, humans. <laughs> um, so that's not really possible. Mm-hmm. So that's why um, I tried to come up with a time um, where we could control for as many, um, you know, possible ca- confounds as we could mm-hmm. um, while still being realistic. Yeah. And that's the balance. You know, you have to, this is not a lab. Like, this is mm-hmm. not your full-time job. Right. Affecting behavior change on your cat. Right. Not Not your full-time no, job. No, um, And <laughs> uh, you need to, you know, balance, um, you know, what's going to give you the best, the best possible outlook that you can, the most accurate results that you can, but also allowing you to, you know, live, live your life. life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, jinx. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a bit different. It's a bit different than, um, like you said, like a lab situation. Right. And, and what we're trying to find here is, is 
kind of why I wanted to talk about this time was was data, was making sure that we're getting the right data. And and you mentioned a bit of that is, you know, we need to be long enough because mm-hmm. this is if we're going to make what I'm assuming is a, is a treatment or an intervention. Is that what you called it? Yeah. Yeah. Something to change that behavior. Mm-hmm. We've got to make sure that our data is representing what we're trying to change. That's what we're looking exactly. for. We want accurate mm-hmm. Uh, accurate data. That's that's the name of the game in in any field in, of science. In any science, and that's yeah. kind of yeah. The whole thing uh, I want to talk about is that it's something anyone who's involved in science is going to deal with is data. And I would have loved for this to have been f- done, gathered, and analyzed like right away. Right that way, <laughs> it could have been done immediately, but it doesn't work that way. You know, the first time we tried it, we realized we weren't getting the right data. Right. And and the, and the trick is I, I didn't want to start an intervention until we knew exactly what we were going to do because, mm-hmm. you know, if we start changing things, you know, how we're collecting data and when and all those things, we're creating confounds and we won't be able to prove that we've actually created behavioral change. Yeah. And, that, and that's bad science. Yeah, it's, it is. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, you want to have a really strong baseline and, you know, we want to intervene on either an increasing or a steady trend. It's best to intervene on a steady trend. Um, but And what's the idea behind that? Um, if you have a steady trend, um, you can show that you've created change, you know, when okay. you look at the graph. So right. we do a lot of um, visual analysis of data in ABA, which was a really hard thing for me to um, to accept when I was learning first. Um, Why so? At first, um, because I like statistics. Okay. And I like to see the numbers and see statistical significance. But because we're working with mostly a single subject design, mm-hmm. it's... Um, we don't have enough power. Um, right. Your statistics aren't so, so powerful. It's the same argument with uh, the twin experiment with Scott Kelly. Mm-hmm, exactly. That, you know, okay, this is great. We're going to figure out what the genome does to this one set of twins. But as far as basing it on the entire human race, it's not. Right. You can't do that. And so, yeah, exactly. So your the, the hope would be that if you can replicate it again and again, mm-hmm. you create more of an argument for yourself. Right. Um, and, and the basis of all that for, if you want to get that far where you want to prove that this is what it is, it all starts at data. Absolutely. It's the number one, most important thing. If you don't have accurate data, you cannot affect behavioral change appropriately. You can't make decisions about programming. You can't find out whether, you know, your design is working. You, you know, you're up a creek with that paddle. Right. Essentially. Right. And, so, and, and that's. What I've loved about uh, the the new findings from Pluto for, with new, the New Horizons mm-hmm. team, it's giving us data on what we actually have. It's incredible. Yeah, it, it's data on what Pluto really is. You it's know, and fact. if anyone's, it's yes. Instead of science fiction, like <laughs> like everything else was, or or just opinion and oh, feelings, right, right? Which great, we're humans. Uh, that's we go to that, but let's not can't just be just that like I, that's the beauty of science is it it gives you data and if it's good data and it's tested right then you can start calling it fact or you can start exactly. calling it a theory mm-hmm. you know and that's that's the beauty of good data but right. it's very easy to take bad data and you have to be determined yeah you have to be really focused mm-hmm. on getting um getting accurate data in order to actually get accurate data. I can't tell you, you know, 
I mean, we talked a lot about making sure you record the data as soon as it happens instead right. of waiting to the end of the hour. Uh, like, yep. you have and I'm to glad stop. you said that. Yeah, you have to stop what you're doing exactly when it happens and you need to write it down. Otherwise, you know, we know as humans our memories aren't perfect and, mm-hmm. you know, you could have, at the by the end of the hour, you know, it could have gotten skewed and, you know, you're thinking about other things. It's, you know, just it's the o- way it is. It's only human. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's incredibly important to have, you know, record data as soon as it happens. And, um, you know, we we graphed the data a couple of times and checked it out and, you know, seeing how our baseline's coming. Um, you know, if you intervene at the wrong time on a baseline. Oh, oh, I forgot to explain that you can um, you can intervene in an increasing trend. Okay. So if we, if we intervene at the wrong time, um, so say... This is a common mistake. Um, you have this, you're taking baseline and um, a lot of people will just take the average mm-hmm. of three days. It only takes three days, three data points to create a trend. Okay. So, you know, you can have more um, data points to create a trend. Um, it's, it's a stronger argument that it's a trend. Is that the idea? More More points than three? Yeah. Yeah. The, the more points you have in a trend, the, you know, the more um, confident you can be with the fact that, you know, this really is the trend. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it only takes three data points. So okay. um, people will take three days of baseline and then take the average and that'll be baseline. Okay. That's really common practice, but you can't prove anything a lot of the time because let's say you had 40 instances of a wire biting one day, you had 10 the next and five the next. Mm-hmm. So your average would be what? It would be above 55 10. 55 divided by three. 55 divided by three. Yeah, that's that easy, right? Um, <laughs> and um, that they would take that as baseline, but you have a decreasing trend. You went from... Right. What did I say? 40, 10 to 50, 5? 50, 10, yeah, 5, something like that. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, so decreasing nonetheless. Decreasing. Yeah. If you intervene at that point, the hopes would be that you would have a decrease in trend, but all you would be doing is continuing a decreasing trend. So you can't prove that you decrease the behavior. It could have just been happening naturally. Right. So that's why we're waiting for either a steady trend mm-hmm. or we're waiting for an increasing trend. Because mm-hmm. if you can take an increasing trend and make it a decreasing trend... Then you know you're affecting it. Yes, you have affected behavioral change. Cool. Very cool. Cool. Yeah. A lot of work, but maybe, maybe, maybe that's why, like, whenever you see people who uh, have been doing research for a long time, you ever mm-hmm. hear them talk, like, they're in, like, this mode. Like, they're never like, oh, my God, like, you've got to believe this, this, like, they're just like, yep, I've been doing this for months. Um, we're in the zone. And... We're going for it. It's like, yeah. okay. that's uh, uh... <laughs> Research is a long and tedious process. If you try to make it fast, it gets sloppy, and, it, mm-hmm. and it's, not, it's not accurate. Yeah, and the good thing is in the scientific community, that's a, that's a bad thing. Yeah. So I mean, thank God for that. I mean, if yeah. it wasn't, um, if, if having something peer-reviewed wasn't a staple of, of furthering scientific research, we would have a real problem. Yeah. And uh, that's the great thing about what they've been doing with Pluto here. So, and, and all the research they've been doing is uh, this new stuff, I'm assuming, has been peer-reviewed or will a, be peer-reviewed. If it's in, it's in a, a journal, journal it's, peer-reviewed. it's peer-reviewed. There you go. Yeah. There you go. And that's the beauty of it. So, thank you 
Sarah for coming on. Absolutely. Uh, we'll we'll catch up more on the Cushy Report, but as it as it turns out, we're we're moving forward and uh, we're gonna figure this out. We're gonna crack her. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. So uh, everyone, uh, thank you, Sarah, for coming on. Absolutely. Have a great week, everybody, and we'll be back next week for the last week of the April of Pluto. Please enjoy Pluto the Misunderstood. Shouldn't matter what it is, because this is Pluto.